So I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles for our message this morning. And just have your Bibles open at um, John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the stories of Nicodemus and then the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. So John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Good. So we got back to the States about three months ago, and uh, we thought we'd, we'd be leaving the upheavals of Zimbabwe and coming to the peace and tranquility of America. <laughs> so uh, obviously we had missed the memo, and or maybe we had our heads buried in the sand, uh, in the African sand. And we came back just as the riots and the protests, and we know what's been going on, as it was gaining intensity. And I suppose what really saddened me the most was, um, yeah, just sort of the ugliness and, yeah, the vitriol that was going around. And of course, I'm not here this morning to get into the politics of it all. But uh, I'm sure you've had your fill of it anyway. Rather, I want us to think a bit through our times, through the lens of Scripture. As we get started, I come to you this morning, first of all, suggesting that really what we are seeing out there in the world is often people clamoring for something in the wrong ways. So people clamoring for something, wanting something desperately, but they do it in the wrong ways. So for example, these days we hear a lot about racism and elitism and sexism and so on. And very quickly, we find ourselves in a world where we hear people want greater justice where people want equality and so on. And that seems to be a deep desire. But very quickly, what we find is that the language becomes, you must, you better, you should. Okay? And there becomes almost a milit militancy about it. And there's not a whole lot about it that's very inviting. There's not a lot about it that is very life-giving. And what we find is that the more and more strident people become, the more and more people become entrenched in their various positions. And so what we find is that deep desires, the deep desire to want to be included, for people to want to feel inclusivity, very quickly what we find is that that mixed with a healthy dose of sin leads to something that is often very ugly and unfortunate. 
there's absolutely nothing welcoming or redemptive in what we see and hear today. And that's the sad thing, isn't it? As you think of the desire to be included and the way in which often people in the world go about it, I'm reminded of an illustration uh, that I found in a book by Dallas Woolard. He's one of my favorite authors. And he talks about growing up in Missouri. Grew up on a farm. And on this farm, uh, the soil was very mineral poor. And so the cattle, as they grazed on the grass, did not get the necessary minerals that they needed. And so what these cattle would sometimes do is they'd go and get into the garbage pile and they'd eat old batteries or bits of metal. And sometimes those things ended up killing the cows. And I think that's a very good illustration of what we see in the world. People who desperately want something because they live in a situation where largely they are, yeah, they're not getting inclusivity. They're not getting what they want, but they go about it in the wrong way. And so the question that I want to deal with this morning is, where do we find real inclusion? Where do we find genuine inclusion? Where do we find that which is welcoming? That which is going to truly meet our deepest need in terms of relationships and being loved. And for us as believers, the great message that we have for the world is the message of the gospel. Where will people find true inclusion? It can only be found in the gospel. Outside of Jesus, what the world wants using wrong means will never be adequately addressed. Never. And so we'll find this turmoil, this constant desire never really being met. And so we will see these ebbs and flows, lesser and greater intensity of people desperately wanting to be included. In order for us to develop this better, I want us to look at these two stories that I'm sure many of us are very familiar with. The story of Nicodemus and the story of the woman at the well. Now, obviously, I can't go into great detail, and I'm just going to be highlighting some aspects of these stories. So, Come with me on a journey. We find in John chapter 3 and chapter 4 these two stories. And first of all, we have the story of Nicodemus. And then, as I said, we're going to be looking at the story of the woman at the well. And in a wonderful way, these two stories provide, as it were, two parentheses. Okay? Brackets, we say in Africa. Okay, And so I think the gospel writer using inclusio and contrast, I think he brings together these two stories at the beginning of his gospel for a purpose. 
So as we come to the story of Nicodemus, John chapter 3, we find Nicodemus who's nervous about his reputation. And so what does he do? He comes to Jesus when? At night. That's right. Okay? Comes under the cover of darkness. Why? Because he may well have lost credibility with his rabbi colleagues if it became known that he was consulting with this disreputable itinerant teacher, this loose prophetic canon. And so he came to Jesus by night. And he came, it seems, without any clearly stated agenda. All we know from the story in chapter 3, verse 2, is that he begins the conversation by complimenting Jesus. What's he say to him? He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a good teacher, a teacher who comes from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Now, does Jesus say thank you very much for that kind compliment? No, Jesus brushes aside this small talk and he gets down to business. He read Nicodemus's heart and he addresses himself to that. And he says to him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Verse 3. So if that is what Nicodemus was there for, to inquire about how to get into the kingdom of God, how to participate in the reality of God, then Jesus made it very clear. What has God got to do? God, by his spirit, has to come and do his work of rebirth. Now, perhaps Nicodemus wasn't really looking for theological information. We don't really know why Nicodemus was there, exactly. Maybe he just was looking for a friend who would kind of guide him. Someone who could help him. How do I enter? Maybe he was tired of the thin religious veneer of those that he was working with. Yeah, you know, even people out there very quickly can pick up on that which is superficial. So maybe that was what Nicodemus was seeing. A lot of superficiality. And here was a man who seemed to be the real thing. The genuine article. Or was he there simply out of curiosity to find out the secret? What's his secret? Why does he seem to be so successful? When you're a leader, you have to maintain influence, right? You have to be at the cutting edge. You've got to stay ahead of the competition. And so maybe Nicodemus came to Jesus because he wanted to find out yeah, what is it? Why is it that you're attracting so many people? Why is it that you seem to be able to do such great things? 
What was Jesus' angle? What was his secret? And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he wants to stay ahead of the game. And the world that he lived in, there in Israel, was a world that was constantly in change. If you study about Israel, it was a place where there was a confluence of cultures. There was Greek learning. There was Roman government. There was Jewish moral traditions. And all of that mixed with Gnostic sects, mystery cults, terrorist bands, and assorted messianic adventurers and fanatics. How do you be a leader in that kind of world? Nicodemus has to be alert to every shift of the wind, and he was going to keep his leadership out in front and on course. So what's he do? Comes to Jesus because he wants something some advice, some piece of strategy. Now, of course, our interest in trying to work out the motive that brought Nicodemus to Jesus is not shared by John. John doesn't tell us. There's no intent here of showing motive. Why? Because this is a story about Jesus. Not Nicodemus. Jesus does not question Nicodemus's motives, and John does not explore them either. After a brief opening approach, Jesus seizes the initiative by introducing a startling, attention-demanding metaphor. What does he say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. You must be born from above. I tell you this, no one can come into the kingdom of God without being born from above. John chapter 3, verse 3. And then before Nicodemus can so much as catch his breath, Jesus adds another metaphor, even odder than the first. He says, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit, verse 5. And so what do we have here? Wind, breath, and Spirit are the same word used in Aramaic that Jesus presumably spoke and also in the Greek that John wrote. So if you look at this word pneuma, Spirit, it can refer to breath, human spirit, wind, and of course, the Spirit of God. And so the necessity in those languages of using the same word for the movement of air caused by a contraction of the lungs, the movement of air caused by a shift in barometric pressure, wind, or the life-giving movement of the living God in us required some discernment as you listened. What's being talked about here? Breathing or weather or God? All covered by one word, pneuma. 
And so no sooner have we asked the question than Jesus clarifies the matter by putting the literal and the metaphorical together, side by side. Verse 8. The wind, Numa, blows where it chooses. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, Numa. Does Nicodemus get it? No. He shakes his head. He doesn't get it. Another story follows. This one of the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. This story takes place not at night, as with Nicodemus, but in broad daylight by Jacob's well in Samaria. Jesus is sitting alone when the woman comes at midday to draw water. We're familiar with the story, aren't we? Okay, so the woman is surprised when Jesus opens the conversation by asking her for a drink. And she's surprised. Why? Because this Jew, we know, what was the relationship between Jews and Samaritans? Not a good one. Okay? Not very good at all. And so she's surprised that this Jew would ask her for water. And she's surprised and she's also wary. Do we detect an edge in her voice in her reply, verse 9? How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Verse 9. Does she distrust this man sitting at the well? It would seem she had good reason to. She is a woman hard used by life. Later in the narrative, what do we learn about her? Well, she's been married five times and is now living with the sixth man outside of marriage. She was the Elizabeth Taylor of the Samaritan world. Okay? Except without the cash. <laughs> okay. It's not difficult to conjure a scenario of serial rejections, multiple failures, year by year accumulating wounds and scars in her body and soul. For her, to be a woman was to be a victim. To be near a man is to be near danger. What is this stranger going to do next? Say next. And so her guard is up. Or just the opposite. Maybe this was not mistrust we de detect in her question, but a teasing flirtatiousness. Maybe she's on the hunt. Maybe she's used up those five husbands and using up this sixth man. Maybe she sees men as an opportunity for gratification or access to power or advancement. And so when they no longer serve her pride or her ambition or her lust, she dumps them. 
It's entirely possible that from the moment she saw Jesus, she began calculating her strategy. Well, this is a nice surprise. Let's see where this goes. We love playing these little games, don't we? Filling in the blanks, guessing at the reality behind the appearances, getting in the inside scoop on people. But again, just as in the Nicodemus story, Jesus shows no interest in playing the game and John shows no interest in exploring motives. He takes her just as he finds her, no questions asked. And so again, we realize that this is not primarily a story about the woman at the well. It's really a story about who? Jesus. After the opening introductory exchange at the well, Jesus starts talking in riddles. What's he say? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he who have given you living water. Hmm. Soon it becomes clear to us that Jesus is using the word water as a metaphor with the Samaritan just as he used wind with Nicodemus. The word water that initially referred to water coming out of a well pulled up by a bucket is now being used to refer to something quite different, something interior, a spring of water gushing up in them to what? Eternal life. John chapter 4, verse 14. And then the earlier Nicodemus metaphor is used again. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24. Spirit again. The word that connects our sensory experience of breath and wind with the nature and activity of God. Just as the conversation is on the brink of descending into an argument about where to worship, what happens? All of a sudden, these words somehow make sense to this woman. Something catches. And what does she end up doing? She ends up running into town to tell everyone, hey, come and meet this man, someone who knows me, tells everything about me. She makes the connection between the things she knows about the Messiah and what Jesus says to her. And so she forgets her dubious status, and in her excitement, she runs into town and becomes a herald for Jesus. The striking thing about these two stories set in parallel, as they are by John, is that God's spirit is at the heart of the action. The aliveness of God, the creating presence of God, 
the breath that's breathed into our lives just as it was breathed into Adam, the breath that makes us alive in ways that biology can never fully explain. And then there's this corresponding feature. The stories taken together insist that God is no respecter of persons. By this I mean that there's no tinge of elitism here, that only a select or in-the-know few can get in on it. These two stories put together teach us that the God-breathed life, the work of the Spirit, goes where? Where he wills, where he chooses. We are welcomed into life, period. There are no preconditions. And so this realization of God reaching down to us achieved is achieved by the use of vocabulary. The introductory metaphors in each story are completely accessible. Everyone knows the words without using a dictionary. So when he talks about birth to Nicodemus, or he's talking about water to the Samaritan woman, we know what he's talking about in one sense. We have sufficient experience of those two words to know what is going on without further instruction. We know what birth is, right? Even my grandchildren know something about birth. They knew mommy's tummy was growing and someday somebody new would be joining us. We all know what water is. We drink or we wash in it several times a day. And so the metaphor common to both stories, wind, breath, is also plain. We all know what wind, breath, is. Blow on your hand. Take a deep breath. Look at the leaves blowing in the wind. And so Jesus uses common vocabulary. And then there are these features. The first story is about a man. The second is about a woman. And there's no preferred gender in the Christian life. The first story takes place in the city, the center of culture and learning and ideas. The second on the outskirts of a small town in the country. Geography has no bearing on perception or aptitude. Nicodemus is a respectable member of a strictly orthodox sect of the Pharisees. The Samaritan is a disreputable member of the despised heretical sect of the Samaritans. What does this tell us? Racial background, religious identity, and moral track record are neither here nor there when it comes to Jesus. The man is named. When somebody is named, what does that often mean? He is a person of repute. He is well known in the community. What was the Samaritan woman's name? We don't know. Anonymity. Like most people in society, anonymous. 
Reputation and standing in the community don't count for anything. There's also this. Nicodemus opens up the conversation with Jesus with a religious statement. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. Jesus opens up the conversation with the Samaritan woman by asking for a drink of water. A sentence that doesn't sound the least bit religious, right? Doesn't seem to make a difference in the Christian life who gets things started, whether it's Jesus or us, or what the subject matter is, heavenly or earthly. Everything with Jesus is a good starting point. And in both stories, a reputation is put at risk. Nicodemus risks his reputation by being seen with Jesus. He risked his reputation. Jesus risks his reputation by associating with a woman of disrepute. A woman of questionable morals. There's a sense of ignoring conventions in both stories, on both sides, a crossing of the lines of caution. Why? When do we cross the line of caution? Well, we know that something here is so important that we forget about those conventions. We're not worried about our reputation. And so, a man and a woman, city and country, an insider and an outsider, a professional and a layperson, a respectable man and a disreputable woman, an orthodox and a heretic, one who takes initiative, one who lets it be taken, one named, the other anonymous, human reputation at risk, divine reputation at risk. And there's also this. In both conversations, spirit is the pivotal word. Spirit links the difference and contrasts in the two stories and makes them aspects of one story. In both conversations, spirit refers primarily to God and then only to us. In the first conversation, the spirit gives birth. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. You cannot be born again without the work of the spirit. Spirit is the agent. He is the source. He is the one who gives life. In the second conversation, God is spirit. The consequence is that we worship God in spirit and in truth. It is only because God is spirit that there is anything to say about we, what we do and what we don't do. And so finally, there's this. Jesus is the primary figure in both stories. 
Although Nicodemus and the Samaritan provide the occasion, it is Jesus who provides the content. In everything that has to do with living, which is the large context in which everything happens, what we do and say takes place, Jesus is working at the center. Jesus is far more active than any one of us. It is Jesus who provides the energy, the reason, the unifying factor. And so we go back to the beginning. Inclusivity, being included. And the wonderful message that we have to share with the world is that if people want to be included, where do they have to come? Come to Jesus. That's the wonderful truth of the gospel. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman. It doesn't matter. Those things have absolutely no bearing. That's the wonderful thing about God's grace. It's many-faceted nature. Where do we find inclusivity? Only in Jesus. And if you think about it, even as the world talks about inclusivity, often it has to do with a particular philosophy. It has to do with a particular political persuasion. Or it has to do with, yeah, you know, where do we find power that brings us together, a shared set of, set of values? Only problem with that is they're multiple. There's all kinds of philosophies. There's all kinds of political theories. There's all kinds of values. But the only place where we will find true, shared value and values is in the person of Jesus. It's only in him that we will find true inclusivity in Jesus. And so this morning... That's the gospel that we have to share with the world. It will not find inclusivity outside of the person of Jesus. It will be like trying to grab jello. They will never find it. It's only in Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Yeah, thank you, Lord, for the glorious gospel that we proclaim. It's the only antidote to a world that feels excluded, unloved, and where people are generally just left broken. Lord, as we look at the world around us, we see people clamoring desire to be included. But what we see is that they're not really finding it. And so may we be proclaimers of this wonderful gospel that in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus we find true inclusion. We become part of a family that brings us together. We commit ourselves to this end, continue to do your good work in and through us. In the name of Jesus, amen.